Welcome to the KDB Review podcast. This is episode six of season 10. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Johnny Gray. Johnny is, as I'm sure you know, one of the most high-profile designers in the kitchen arena, and he has been that for decades. His boundless enthusiasm for design and the role the kitchen has in our lives, in society and in history, has led him to not only continue his own eponymous practice, but also push forward formal education and debate around the subject as a whole. But now he's taking the concept that kickstarted his career 40 years ago and he's updating it for a brand new market. And that's the unfitted kitchen. For the first time, he is producing a range of kitchen furniture that showrooms can display and designers can specify. And it's all freestanding. It's a really interesting concept. And if you go along to this episode's page on kbbreview.com forward slash podcast, I'll put up a gallery of images of some of the items in question. I took a trip along to his home in Hampshire to find out more. And as always with Johnny, it's a pretty freewheeling conversation about his inspirations, his history, his design philosophies, and of course, the new unfitted kitchen concept. But first, what is the current health of the independent kitchen and bathroom retail market? How confident are you retailers about the future of your business? What do you think about the biggest topical issues such as finding an installer or the service you get from your suppliers? We're asking all these questions and more in the KBB Review Retailer Survey 2024. So if you're an independent retailer, watch out in your inbox for an email inviting you to take part or simply go to kbbreview.com forward slash survey 24 and click on the link. It really will only take a few minutes and to say thank you for your time, every retailer who completes the form will be entered into a big prize draw where you could win £500 of vouchers for a holiday, a brand new iPad or one of 10 £20 Amazon vouchers. Perfect, just in time for Christmas. So that's kbbreview.com forward slash survey 24 and you can find that link in the episode description. Now, in the words of Jack Torrance, Here's Johnny! First of all, Johnny, I've been in several Johnny Gray kitchens, but I've never been in Johnny Gray's kitchen. <laughs> so thank you so much for inviting me up here. And what I will say is it is absolutely beautiful here for a start, right in the South Downs here near Peacefield. But if everyone who knows you closes their eyes and imagines what your house is like, it is exactly like that. It is a direct reflection of your personality, don't you think? I think the garden is accepting plants and trees and shrubs to be allowed to be themselves is a key thing for me. The dislike of sort of suburban neatness is a worry. And I'm surrounded by eight or ten neighbours. And on a Saturday morning, you can hear the strimmers go. And I don't use strimmers. So yes, in respect, I think the way I've developed the garden is... It's my personality. And probably the buildings. I like pavilions. I like the idea of separate buildings giving a certain degree of privacy. And I had an absolutely crucial reason for buying his property, which was that I was determined never to be away from my children when they were growing up, apart from having a show in San Francisco, which is a slightly kind of like not the right thing to say. But broadly speaking, I wanted to be around for their education. And so that meant staying at home, working at home. And it's particularly important for small children. And I really appreciate the opportunity that I had for that because it's bloody difficult for most young people now. It's absolutely beautiful here. So thank you for inviting me over. And it's fantastic to come and see new stuff that you're doing. That's what's very exciting about it. There's no laurel resting going on here. So let's take a step back because your new venture is very much built on an old concept, or at least a concept that you come up with a long time ago. So I know you've spoken about this a few times. Let's step back. And tell me the original concept of the unfitted kitchen. 
it was sitting in my aunt's kitchen cooking with her when I was sort of probably in my teens that I realized that we were really in a, a kind of living room in which you cook. That's my kind of modern phrase. I but we were an assemblage of mostly furniture from bric-a-brac shops that my aunt put together after the war. And here was this woman who became an incredibly celebrated food writer and cook. And if she could cook beautifully in this kitchen and entertain, then anybody can, was my thing. But also the pleasure of looking at her furniture. And it wasn't, there's was only one really valuable piece of furniture there that she got from, I think, from the Dijon area in France, which is a 17th century cupboard. But otherwise, it was quite mundane, kind furniture that ordinary people just kind of threw out of, well, it was being thrown out of houses in Wales and Yorkshire and the rest of it because nobody wanted them anymore. So that made me realise that you could actually use the principle of, if you like, freestanding furniture as a design methodology. Sorry, I'm being a bit kind of architectural student here. But to justify the core reason of doing this is that planning with furniture gives you more freedom than planning with units. And it sounds a bit strange. So jump to the next phase the Sunday Times doing a story on me in, in 1980. And that story was in was written, nothing to do with me, by a very independent-minded journalist. And she titled it, Why This Awful Fixation With Pity Kitchens? Because she could see that I was doing something different. I hadn't really been conscious of this as such. So they hadn't planned the word unfitted at that point. And then I began to realize more and more that there was an alternative to what was going on. And I think that what I really felt was they're claustrophobic. Pity kitchens are they're built into the corners, and then I started to examine why this was the case. And I think that is a really interesting point because there's this idea that you've got to fill up wall to wall, especially in small kitchens, with countertops. You don't because actually, if you have too much countertop space, it causes confusion. What you really want is targeted, well-planned activity points, if you like, what we call dedicated work surfaces. So cut to the next part of the story is in 1984, I put a small ad in the Times when I had invented the word unfitted. It was, I think, about two inches squares. It cost me 400 pounds. Awful lot of money for me then, right? And I got something like 30 inquiries within a space of two weeks. So I realized I was onto something. And then after this article in Sunday Times, I had a lot of interest, but I'd got ill because I just couldn't cope with demand. It was just too much for me. So I slightly retreated. I lived just the view out the window here in a small village in Harting where my mother had built this, um, this cottage and I sort of built a small sort of workshop there. Cut a long story short, I decided that I wanted to go back into the world of supplying people with kitchens, but I didn't want to do it myself. So I approached Smallbone. Peter Shepperton was the creative director at that point. He was wonderful. He introduced me to Graham Clark, and I went, I went to get it, to see Graham, and um, I said, I've got these ideas. And he said, well, just write me a letter and just tell me how many you've got. And I had 14 different ideas. And, and then he rang me up. Yes, he got up the next week, and he said, Mike, we're going to lunch. And he said, off you go. The unfitted kitchen is going to be your thing. And we will, we will basically create the whole idea. And we will support it. We'll help you build prototypes. And you can come up with thinking. We want to do something original and new. And they just done two things. They'd done the pine collection made out of bits of old junk pine, which everybody in the industry was rude about. It also was doomed to failure, absolutely reverse. So they were used to innovation. And they were really part of the kitchen industry. So when they saw me, they didn't tell me to go and piss off. And that's how it started. And uh, as soon as we got launched with it, the media loved it. I mean, we just had so much free publicity because I think it appeals to people's spirits about how they want to live more than these kind of operating theatre-style kitchens. You're talking about 30, 40 years ago, but everything you're saying is, is still so relevant. Uh, it's, it's still a conversation that could just it, really have a history. It's slightly surprising to me. I thought there would be more innovation in the kitchen industry, but there appears to be a bit staffing. 
I think. But having said that, there's been a, a very interesting story because the small bone re- relationship, sadly, was terminated after about two years. And so I set up a, my custom business. And within a few years of doing that, I realized that I was more analytical than most people and more interested in history. And particularly, I had a great passion for furniture. I think that runs through almost all my career. It's not just me thinking furniture is more practical. It's me thinking furniture is just this wonderful opportunity to get people something you can pin a story to. Really. In fact, I used to, when I first started, I was actually restoring antique pine furniture, which is exactly how Smallbone started, mm-hmm. mostly Irish furniture. And Irish furniture, wow, is that different? Does that tell a story? I mean, it's sort of bonkers detailing. And just, you, you smile when you look at it. Now, yeah, I think it's so skillful to do things like that. And you probably look at this furniture in here and you think, yeah, is Johnny Gray on some kind of drug? You'd... <laughs> I've always thought that. <laughs> and, and well, thank you. You know, that's, I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that creativity, I hope, and, and a sort of feeling of mental independence, really. Do you know what I think it might be? As we've said many times before, different people have different tastes and that's absolutely fine. But I think what that school of thinking that you're in here, for me, is about being characterful. And a lot of perhaps modular furniture from Germany, you know, which is where most of it comes from, always very Germanic in style. That's probably the thing that it lacks is that character. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because the word modular is something I had a big problem with. But I don't anymore because I realised that I'd misjudged what you can do with modular. I always assumed it was something that just simply you could repeat. Actually, modular is not. It's something you can actually, how do I describe this? You can dismantle and put together in different configurations. Mm. And also it can come in different configurations. That's not a crime. Also, if you use the new interpretations of systems thinking, then you start to think about how does this fit into the overall idea of a system. In this case, a system is how to live at home and cook and have a role that's full of flexibility. Because after all, post-COVID, very few people are just now using their kitchens to cook it. And again, that's where personality and taste... And that's not a crime either. And I think it's very difficult if you palm off all your kitchen design decisions to a showroom manager or a showroom designer, you lose... It's not so much you lose control, but you lose that connectivity. And also, by the way, quite a lot of the the way these modular kitchens work are static. You can't move them around. And that's the other lovely thing about furniture is, you know, you've just seen my my kitchen for the first time. We built it 30 years ago. Basically, the the core island is exactly as it was 30 years ago, but we fiddled around at the edges. And I... Just that's normal. I mean, what what happened to us? Well, how did we lose that? Because the dining, the soft part of a kitchen is something that surely must respond to your life. So when we first had that kitchen, we had four young children. So I had a sofa in there. And every morning, them get up to get them to school. And we basically go and sit on the sofa while they got dressed. And in between on that, they might have a Weetabix. <laughs> and then I've got dogs. <laughs> yes, or whatever, you know, yeah. exactly. So I think that there is a lovely flexibility Again, it's this definition of the word furniture, isn't it? This is classic furniture stuff. It's dresses, it's sideboards, it's, it's all based on those kind of things where they do age and the age becomes part of the character. That's also true. Rather than just getting old. Worn in. You're worn in, better, yeah. It's like a cathedral step. It's the front door of that cathedral step. Thousands of people have been over it. And does that make you feel, you know, annoyed? Does it got to be concreted up? No, you leave it. You leave the story of the fact that people, thousands of people have stepped there. So that's one thing. The other thing about this is, I think, which is slightly different from the small bone collections, is I'm able to be slightly more adventurous with the choice of materials, the shapes, and probably some of the functions I've worked out a bit more clearly over the years. Well, let's take, let's take a step back because we'll, we'll just not jump ahead of ourselves here. So you've taken this unfitted kitchen concept that you've lived with for most of your professional life, and you're basically giving it a whole new life. And you're taking a lot of the same 
Well, the concept of the old fitted kitchen, but also a lot of the styling and lots of the things that are very, you know, the, the Johnny Gray old fitted kitchen. Mm-hmm. And you're launching a whole new range of it, which is a little bit more modular, a little bit more affordable than perhaps yeah. the commission due yeah. to do it. So talk me through how you got to, to that stage. I think I got to the point, particularly during COVID, with the cost of making custom-made kitchens. And this is, this is really important, is the cost of managing the process became absolutely unbelievable. They went up by something like 50%, the cost of our kitchens. And I just, I, don't, I was already embarrassed quite a lot of the time about the cost of these things. Now, on one level, I was not embarrassed because if you want Crossford to make things, you've got to pay them. So if you're having a go at the price, have a go at the craftsman and say, well, sorry, we're not going to pay you to, to be able to live. Mm. Or we don't want those kind of craftsmen. We just want factories making MDF boxes. That I don't apologize for. But then I realized also the unfitted kitchen has got another lovely element to it, which is that you can accumulate it over time. You only need two or three pieces. So in theory, you would start with 15 grand. You might need 50 to come and make what you want. But the other thing is you can go and buy pieces of furniture at a, you know, a vintage shop and you know, and that's fun. I, I, that's not a crime in our proposal yet. However, what is lovely here is each piece has got is a little bit more than purely one function or a clearly defined function. It has a certain degree of aesthetic reference or charm. So you might look at one piece and say, oh, God, that comes out of a sci-fi movie. Or you might look at another piece and say, oh, that could be a bit of Indian street art. Or you might look at the central line and say, oh, that looks like it has probably come out of a modernist interior. Mm. And they are have connections to, which is nice, some of them for the connection with using the same wood. But they're not designed specifically to be matchy-matchy. But it is designed to be accessible to a market that couldn't afford... Oh, I see, yes, price-wise. Yeah. yeah, some of the pieces will cost under £1,000. That is the big difference for you to enter a showroom-level market, I suppose is what this is. And you know, you want showrooms to take this on and have them on display. And yeah, I, I very much do. And I think there was a, a, another really nice sort of fit into all this sort of unfitted fit is that because nobody's really doing this, it doesn't compete with other product that you're offering from, say, different kitchen manufacturers. So, in theory, it boosts your appeal, widens your market, or widens your customer base. My fear was that you're kind of going up against that type of market, but actually it's a completely different thing. And I can see how it would become a real feature in a showroom because it contrasts with some of the other more modular generic stuff. These are real statement showroom pieces as well that get people talking, get people asking questions. I'm sure you're, you're not planning on selling hundreds of thousands of these things in a massive pantry. You know, that's never the aim. But for people who are interested in standout things that grab the eye and catch the attention. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, in the past, I would have said to you, my, my customer base were people with some degree of available cash, but also they wanted something different. And they have what I would call an eye for design. Now, you know, that's really what you're sort of saying is that there are people who do have an eye that needs to be satisfied, but it's not good enough just to have MDF boxes in there. Or to find something different than their person at door. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, yes, that of too, isn't it? That's absolutely true, too. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And we can customize this to to a large extent as well. So, so how has this been? Well, you talk about Crasso and things like that. How is the manufacturing of it and the actual supply of it? How's that working? We are in early stages now, but the bigger pieces are made in Lithuania at the moment. And the reason for that is there's a, an interesting northern tradition of I was going to say craftsmanship, which all the Nordic states have, and Lithuania is a particularly good example. So we get particularly high-quality uh, furniture from there. Plus also, interesting enough, we have got access to Ukrainian wood, particularly olive ash. And olive ash is one of the woods that I particularly love. I wanted the majority of it to be made of olive ash. Some of the pieces are made of oak here, and some also in maple. So it varies a little bit. 
Um, but that's the first thing. And the problem was that I couldn't find a manufacturer in the UK to make them for the price that we wanted. However, there is actually a more interesting picture, which is the smaller pieces, which have got a large CNC capacity, are being made here. And the reason for that is that if you reduce the amount of time you spend making the components, you can A, reduce the price and B, still keep the same quality of the finishes and the assembly. We're not just using solid wood here. We're using everything from stainless steel to, to copper to obviously some kinds of strata woods, but we're also going to use sustainably made MDF, which you can has now been recycled. And we're very keen to use sustainable materials wherever we can. Well, this is a really interesting intellectual challenge for you as well, to have to limit yourself in terms of cost or price points. Like you have to find solutions to these problems. While the Ulfi the Kitchen concept isn't new, this part of it is new. This yes, is a new challenge. That's right. I mean, I think that, that certainly we've been given this very good opportunity to be a CNC manufacturer, which we should embrace. And I don't think many people in the kitchen industry are quite managing that. You can't simulate hand craftsmanship, but you can certainly go a long way. Now, with a CNC device, you press the button and off it goes. And that actually really does look like it's handmade. Now, I know it's a bit naughty to say we're not trying to con people, but what we're trying to do is to bring us a presence of the hand so that the intellectual process, you're right, goes on in my head in all sorts of different ways. But one of them is try to get things that you can touch and enjoy touching, like the handles are really important to me. So you can see here, most of them are, are, are handles I've developed over the years, but the suitcase handle is a really classic example. You want to touch it. You, know, when you look at that cupboard, you actually want to open up that door. It's quite an intriguing process. And a lot of it for most designers is, is you know, you go for a big manufacturer and they say, well, then it's 100,000 of these cars or whatever you are. And that's kind of becomes a fairly engineering process. Here, we're lucky because we probably only will make five of these these bit of furniture for time initially anyway, and then we'll go into a much bigger scale production as we can see where the demand comes, particularly for the base cabinetry. But, you know, we can play around and we can make things different and we can use different wood or suitcase items whenever we feel like it because we only make them in batches of 100. So what is the plan for it in terms of rolling it out into the world? How okay, so the plan is that we want to have about 10 uh, UK dealers, and they'll be very carefully chosen as people who've got the capacity to, to, if you like, to sell design or craftsmanship. They don't necessarily have to be kitchen stores. We are then going to probably have what we call some sort of secondary sales outlets, which could be um, art galleries. Because don't forget here, in a way, we're offering furniture, not whole kitchens. So we, there's a whole different level of retail outlet opportunity. Then obviously there will be the availability. We have a, a generic website, which we will point any of our dealers from their different regions. We will point sales towards them. And then we will probably take responsibility here at um, the studio initially for any export sales. And we have two particular or three particular countries we're interested in. We've already we've got our first dealer in Hawaii, which is very exciting. So we have full. I'm sure you've been over there to, to rescue uh, the place. Not just quite yet, sure. but don't worry, that's, that's very high on the list. That's quality um, control, Johnny. Yes. We have representative in New York, and we will probably um, we will sell either in LA or San Francisco. And we'll probably appoint again about another 10 in the US. One of my passions is to try and do something to link with Japan, uh, having done a few talks there and made some contacts. I think they'd be very sympathetic to this, although their kitchens are very small. The Japanese love of you know small things and handcrafted things they really get. Do you think there's something fundamentally British about all this? It's a very British approach to it. I think the Britishness pulls out of it as you yes. go around it. There's something slightly eccentric, there's something a little bit quirky about it. Something yes, bit... and, I, and I'll tell you how, that that actually resonates very much with when we first launched The Unfitted Kitchen. The very first publication that ran a major story was The World of Interiors. 
There was an editor there. It was very independent minded, called Min Hog. She saw the furniture. She was pretty enthusiastic. But she had just invented this thing called shabby chic, which became a big movement in it. And that was totally British. Now, what that was, was those grand country houses, when they extend, they don't do the same style. They just add on the style of the time. You know, they have worn out sofas, beaten up carpets, a sort of look, a, a sort of British relaxedness, which there isn't in other countries. You would not find that in, certainly in Germany, and probably in America. You might find bits of it in France because they, they get sort of aging buildings in a nice way that, that probably some others don't. But yes, we, we can handle aging things and slightly eccentric combinations and things that are slightly shabby. But what do you think? Well, I, it's always been a part of your DNA, hasn't it? That element of it. It's very esoteric. It's very stylish. It's very statement stuff. So the way you're talking about furniture, this isn't old fashioned in any way. I don't think the concept of it has a, a timelessness to it. But I think it is eccentric in the way that British stuff is properly done. There's another way of, uh, of looking at this also, is if you look at national characteristics of design, and you say, look at Italian design, mm. and you compare with British design, actually British design in some ways is more restrained. It doesn't shout out so loud. Now, what I hope people will find with this is that actually the furniture doesn't necessarily shout out at you. It has a presence. It has individuality. But it doesn't say, I'm trying to be different all the time. No, no, it, it has a real character about it that makes it stand out. It's not ostentatious in it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm trying for. Now, that gives you a bit more advantage than, say, being, um, to be careful what I say, but I can say that tongue-in-cheek, you know, having a, a slightly Germanic view of how things might look. So, yes, there are national characteristics in design. There's a nice story to this, which is uh, a little anecdote. So, I'm sending kitchens to three Swiss bankers. I've done the designs, and I fly to Zurich. And I'm thinking, oh, great, you know, they'll, they'll take me out to dinner. We'll have a nice relaxed evening and I'll show them the designs and I'll show them the prices. But no, it was a chauffeur-driven car at the airport door and I'm, I'm rushed straight to a restaurant at three in the afternoon but they've kept open for me. And oh God, now I've got to perform and I'm tired and I really wasn't ready for this. And I'm sitting there and they're looking at the designs and their wives are next to them. And uh, there's a slight problem because the Swiss franc is, is low and the pound is high at this point. So the Swiss bankers, the, the Lee one, is saying to me, Can I, um, yeah, the, the pricing, yeah, yeah. well, um, now why, why would we buy a kitchen off a British designer when the British can't cook? And I thought, oh my God, I'm really in trouble now. And it's like those amazing moments in life when God knows how your brain works or the ball that Lee helps you out, but it, they did. So I said, look, could you please stand up? The three men. I said, right, you're all wearing church's shoes, aren't you? And so was I. The point was made. British craftsmanship, we have a slightly stronger tradition in rest of Europe with what I would call custom craftsmanship. And by the way, I've tried to have my kitchens made in the States on a number of occasions, and with a few honourable exceptions, the quality is not the same as here. So we will continue probably to manufacture whenever we can here, but it's not going to be possible for all of it. I don't think. Can I conclude this, Johnny, with a delicate question? Go ahead. You are in the more mature years of your life, shall we say, mm -hmm. What on earth is possessing you to open up a whole new <laughs> business where you could very easily rest on your laurels in this beautiful part of the country? Yeah. What, what is possessing you to suddenly launch off into a whole new thing? Because this is what I was born to do, to make beautiful furniture probably and to design wonderful kitchens that people could actually partly design themselves. And I feel the kitchen industry really, really needs this. I mean, I'm sure that's partly arrogance, but it's also a great passion for design and craftsmanship. I feel really comfortable in, um, I mean, I'm not saying that it's all going to work out fine and be easy or anything like that, but I feel comfortable with leaving this behind as a sort of legacy project. And I hope, I hope it will work because actually it should be 
one of the options that everybody has when they buy a kitchen. They can go fitted or unfitted. I think it will give a lot of pleasure to people too, I hope. The need to create is always there, no matter what the age is. I do. I, I do think that. And I, I think I'd feel a bit useless if I just sat around reading nice books and giving the odd talk, you know. There's something very tangible about doing kitchen. I'm going to get very pretentious myself now by saying I think the single most valuable trait a person can have is curiosity. And I think if you are endlessly curious, that never leaves you. And whether that is reading books or more or whatever it is, or whether that's going out starting new things, I think if you're always interested and always curious in the world around you, the same goes for journalism or writing or nice. I so agree, actually. And there's lovely, there's a lovely anecdote. I was mentored by Elizabeth David my aunt, you know, as a food writer. And she, I think, was one of the people who really, she teach me curiosity. She was curious to the day she died. And it was quite extraordinary. This She'd write these post-it notes in those days. There was no Beatrice, obviously. And probably once a fortnight or once a week, I'd get something she'd torn out of a magazine in the post with a little post-it note with a kind of cryptic comment on it. And her range of interests were very wide. And I think also partly going and studying architecture at the time I did in the 1970s in London was a most extraordinary experience. I mean, nobody knew what architecture was. And furthermore, that was fine. That wasn't a problem. It's like, you know, I, you could almost say, well, I'm a, nobody really knows what a good kitchen is. You know, we're still learning. Which is a perfect place to end it. So we'll fade out there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Johnny for his time and hospitality there. It's always such an interesting conversation with him. And he's got a really interesting concept there. And I think it has the potential to be a statement display in a showroom. So we'll watch this space to see how he gets on. But as always with him too, if you could bottle his enthusiasm and passion for kitchen design and sell that, you'd definitely be on for a winner. Don't forget, if you're an independent KBB retailer, that you can have your say in the KBB Review Retailer Survey 2024. It only takes a few minutes and you will be entered into a prize draw to win one of 12 fabulous prizes, including £500 of holiday vouchers or a new iPad. Go to kbbreview.com forward slash survey 24 and click on the link to start. All the info, including that link, is in the episode description. See you next time.